50% of the Earth's surface is in that high seas area, which for the most part has been unmanaged, unregulated for time immemorial. And what we'd often refer to as the Wild Wet West. The Wild Wet West has been tamed. After decades of talks, the United Nations has just agreed a treaty to protect the high seas. This global ocean treaty or this high seas treaty will make sure that we can really sustainably manage it. On this episode of Radio Davos, we hear what's in the treaty, why it's so significant, and what it means for a fragmented world to come together for the common good. The ocean may divide us physically, but it certainly brings people together. There's a long and rich history of multilateralism around the ocean. Christian Teleki, who heads up the World Economic Forum's work on the ocean, has dedicated a large chunk of his life to getting this type of outcome. We hear what this means to him. Huge. Absolutely huge. I mean, an extremely emotional moment for many people. I mean, I, I you know, even now, just when you asked me what about, I, I felt goosebumps just thinking about what it what it means. And while there are still enormous challenges in protecting the ocean and the planet, Teleki says we should take a moment to enjoy this rare good news story. For once in our lives, we're actually handing on a legacy to our children and our grandchildren that we can be really proud of. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts or visit wf.ch podcast where you'll also find Meet the Leader, Agenda Dialogues and the World Economic Forum Book Club Podcast. I'm Robin Pomeroy, Podcast Editor at the World Economic Forum and with this analysis of the UN High Seas Treaty. I firmly believe that this is something that the world shall feel proud of. I think we need to celebrate these moments. This is Radio Davos. Good evening-ish, ladies and gentlemen. At UN headquarters in New York, Rena Lee, Singapore's ambassador for the ocean and chairperson of gruelling talks on protecting it, announces after 38 hours of negotiations that the world has finally agreed the first treaty to govern the high seas. The ship has reached the shore. The ship has reached the shore. For people involved in ocean conservation, the agreement after decades of talking about it of a UN high seas treaty is monumental. To explain to us what was agreed, what it means for the ocean and for all of us who depend on the ocean for food, trade, biodiversity, for things to do with climate. I'm joined by someone who's been working in this field for years, Christian Teleki, who is the director of Ocean Action Agenda and Friends of Ocean Action at the World Economic Forum. Christian, thanks for joining us. How are you? Very good. Delighted to be here at this really exciting moment in history. Just delighted to have you here. So a lot of people will have seen the headlines probably a few days ago as we record this of this meeting at the United Nations in New York. They agreed a treaty, the High Seas Treaty. Could you give us an outline of what was agreed? Sure. Well, maybe maybe I should just start to make sure everyone understands what we talk about in terms of the high seas. Um, you know, every country around the world uh, has their national waters or their exclusive economic zone, which is out to 200 nautical miles from their from their shore. The, the waters that are beyond that, outside of those national areas, are what's called the high seas. And that's about 50% of the Earth's surface. So 50% of the Earth's surface is in that high seas area, which for the, you know, for the most part has been unmanaged, unregulated, you know, for time immemorial. And, and what we'd often refer to as the, the wild wet west, you know, this area that is relatively, you know, unmanaged. And, and I think, you know, this represents an amazing moment to actually start, you know, managing that and properly coming up with laws and regulations. They're going to stop, you know, a whole range of, of activities that really should not be going on there. And so, um, you know, this, this, you know, global ocean treaty or this high seas treaty um, is, you know, obviously subject to you know, binding rules and regulations that will you know, protect ocean life, but it will make sure that we can really sustainably manage it. 
Um, and that is a really important you know, dimension. Um, I think when we think about the high seas and the role the ocean plays, one needs to also think about all the you know services that, that it provides. I mean, most people in their lives are not going to be ever in the high seas. You will fly over it um, and you will see it below you in the front of the plane. But the majority of people are not going to you know, ever really experience it. But, the, you know, nevertheless, you know, the ocean regulates our climate. It regulates our weather. More than half the oxygen from the planet is derived from the ocean. You know, a whole sorts of range of things. And perhaps the final thing I would say, what's really exciting about this, is that um, in Montreal in December was the Global Biodiversity Framework was agreed. Within that, you know, within this biodiversity summit, it was agreed that that you know, over 190 countries agreed that there would be uh, uh, protecting 30% of the planet by 2030. Um, you know, we're currently at 8%, around 8% uh, globally for the ocean. That's a long way to go in the next 2,800 plus days. Um, and by doing so now, it means we can protect really vast areas of the, you know, of the ocean because of this treaty. So what are the kind of things that are threatening the ocean now if you leave it as a wet wild west what are the human activities that are going on that are putting all those things at risk so you can imagine uh, over exploitation of fisheries for example you know taking too much too many fish out of the sea uh, you could imagine uh, pollution you know there is uh, you know no reason why you know, anyone who wants to do any kind of dumping any kind of pollution um, you know, there's no regulation at that. You know, in those in those high seas areas. Hold on. Um, so I so could I, think- I could I could load a boat up with any rubbish I want, sail out a couple of hundred miles, and then just dump it in the sea, and that's just my business. Absolutely. Sure, that's your business. I mean, wow. who's going to regulate that? You know, who is going to who is going to prosecute that? Yes, there are there are conventions around uh, around dumping. You know, you know, dumping into the ocean. Yes. Uh, but um, there is uh, no regulation for that. You know, there is no one that is going to enforce that. You know, who's going to prosecute you? It's out of sight and out of mind. And I think that's the biggest point, right? Of this is that, you know, they have if you have no regulations, no framework, then you know, then this is this is really truly out of sight and out of mind. And as I said to you, most people are are never going to be ever in the high seas. You know, the majority of the world's you know tourism, for example, is fifty uh, percent of the of global tourism is actually ocean, ocean and coastal based. But that occurs within the first, you know, few miles of of shore globally. One thing I, I think is really important to point out as well. I, I talked about sort of over exploitation of fish. The majority of nations, you know, that have coastlines, don't have access to the high seas. Don't have the capabilities. Don't have the fishing fleet that can go out, you know, beyond you know 200 nautical, nautical miles. Do long distance fishing, um, which means you know months at sea before actually coming back into port. And obviously that 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 in itself you know has been a big sticking point in getting to the point today with this high seas treaty was that um, you know most of the nations are saying well actually you know if if a small number of nations are, are going to be exploiting those areas well surely we should be benefiting in some way because this is the common heritage of humankind you know this vast area so I think there's some really important dimensions here that now allow us to provide some regulations and frameworks so it's a it's a really exciting moment I, I have to say. Just on fishing, I think it will surprise a lot of people that these regulations don't already exist. I mean, because we hear about, certainly in Europe, fishing quotas and that kind of thing. Is, is that only then referring to part of the ocean that is close to the shore that is actually national waters? 
Yeah, I mean, there are, there are what are called regional fishing management organizations that sort of divide up the sea largely based around tuna um, and the, the fishing of, of tuna. But uh, this is you know, now a, a more comprehensive tool that will really provide some policy frameworks, more of a holistic regulation you know, of this. So you're, you're not talking about this in isolation, just fisheries alone. You're, you're starting to manage the, the ocean as a whole for its biodiversity, right. which I think is a really important dimension to it. So we hear a lot about the whaling convention as well, don't we? So that's another one. So yes, it's yeah, yeah, another yeah, yeah. piecemeal so, so regulation. If you think about the, the governance structure of the ocean at the moment, I think there's something like 570 plus different regulations and governance mechanisms that are associated with the high seas. And so um, it's a very complicated governance structure. But, you know, this is hoping to get moved to, a, to more of a structure that will allow for greater sort of regulations. And indeed, one of the most important tools around that is going to be the creation of, of high seas marine protected areas. I mean, this is this is going to be transformational for the management and protection of this common heritage for humankind. It's a very unique moment. Of course, the devil is in the detail, without a doubt. Um, there's still going to be um, some translation of the text, making sure that all the elements are there that was discussed. Uh, we do know that the that the text, as far as we we understand, is not going to be opened again. So why did it take 20 years? I mean, surely no one's against protecting the ocean. I mean, you've been working in this. It's clearly, we can hear from the way you're talking about it, this is a monumental step. So why did it take 20 years? I think the biggest contentious issues are, as I mentioned to you, is around benefit sharing of, of the sort of potential marine genetic resources and the, you know, sort of the stringency of, of environmental impact assessments for any kind of future potential exploitation. You know, and what I mean about that is to talk about resources from the ocean include, you know, genetic information for marine organisms that may be used in cosmetics, for example food supplements, um, research, medicines, other goods, including the development of, a, of a drugs that were treated for, for COVID-19. When you start quantifying the value of these resources, you know, it's extensive. And, and you know, why should only a handful of, of you know, states benefit from that? So really, we're, you know, we're talking about a fair and equitable sharing of benefits that arise from any kind of sustainable use of marine genetic resources. And you can imagine what, you know, what is fair? you know, what is equitable and making sure that when that was negotiated, that you just don't, again, have a small handful of states, that you do have a full representation and inclusive representation, you know, getting it right, making sure that it's fair, making sure it's equitable, you know, have, have long been some of the, the sticking points because they're not easy. You know, these are not easy issues. The UN Secretary General called this an achievement, a victory for multilateralism. I think that's interesting. We're talking about a world that's fragmented, you know, economic blocks against each other, big war in Europe, this kind of thing. It's fairly rare that we achieve a landmark kind of global agreement. What's your feeling about the state of what this tells us about multilateralism? You know, the ocean may divide us physically, but it certainly brings people together. There's a long and rich history of uh, multilateralism around the ocean. Just just by way of an example, if you think about this, in uh, 1959, arguably at the height of the you know, of the Cold War, you know, Russia and the United States and other countries came together to form the Antarctic Treaty. You know, an amazing moment. If we need to use the ocean as a way to you know as a bridge building in a in a very polarized world, then you know all the better. We've had a good example of that. Last year at the World Trade Organization to end harmful fishery subsidies. This is, again, something that, that has been you know, a, a long time coming. Countries were able to get that over the line. There are some good examples. Included in that now 
is the plastics treaty you know another opportunity for multilateralism to to really drive this forward you know the ocean is everybody's business you know we are connecting the ocean to addressing a whole range of of, of other issues so uh, i i would hope that going forward that this is a continues to be a future place that brings people together next on our list perhaps i would hope is the southern ocean around the antarctic you know is this another another possibility where you know some of the big countries at the moment not the least of which is russia have a big stake in that area is this another moment where you know using the high seas treaty the antarctic treaty bring it together and designate vast areas of the antarctic ocean that that um as, as a protected area what does that mean a protected area just interesting going going into that a vast area of what there's no shipping yep. allowed in there is no fishing allowed in there is no deep sea mining allowed in there what what would happen generally speaking um in the high seas what we're talking about is no extraction um so that means uh no mining uh that means no uh, extraction of resources whatsoever the second point in terms of the high seas uh, i think there's a question around um you know arguably the fishing sector the shipping sector would say well look you know we're just transiting that you know and we're and we're going to have you know minimal to no impact on that well question about noise um question about you know pollution there um i still think that that um needs to be worked out and understood about what that you know what that what is that going to mean um because we always have you know 90 plus percent of what we um you know what we uh the goods we you know are part of our lives are moved around you know on the on the, on the ocean and those vessels are transiting the high seas um but there are ways at which you know the shipping industry is very exciting because they are I think they're leading the way with decarbonization. They're thinking about how they can minimize their impact, you know, on the ocean, and also how they can potentially contribute in some way to its regeneration and restoration. So, still to be determined. But generally speaking, we're talking about you know no extraction, you know, you know whatsoever in the in these areas of the high seas. You mentioned the attitude of shipping companies. I'm wondering how you've seen attitudes evolve over the years you've been working on this from the private sector speaking from the world economic forum which brings together the private sector and the public sector and academics and everyone else has has there been a change i mean we've seen a change at least rhetorically when it comes to climate change uh, what companies say about that do you think there has been on the ocean as well absolutely you know and I, I i constantly say that i've never seen the ocean higher on the political and business agenda than it ever has before you know people are are waking up to the fact of the role that the ocean has played we've taken it for granted for so long um and i and i think what's interesting um about eight years ago the world started waking up to something that we all knew about in the community which was plastics pollution and and almost as like a, a sort of a gateway for plastics to raise a whole bunch of other issues. Well, what else is going on in the ocean? Why should we care about uh, sustainably managing our fisheries and our resources? How should we be thinking about it in terms of the role it plays uh, with climate regulation? You know, are there solutions that are there that we should be investing in? And indeed there are. Five ocean solutions can get you to 21% of the greenhouse gas reductions that are required for the, the uh, 1.5 degree to target. Five solutions. We're talking about decarbonization of sh- decarbonization of shipping, nature-based solutions, shifting diets, offshore renewable energy, and carbon storage in the seabed. So, I, I think there is a there's a great interest um, in uh, in doing that, and we're also seeing a number of organizations which are have nothing to do with the ocean whatsoever, but are thinking, well, what is our part in this? What's our role? 
should we be doing something? Should we, you know, as as part of our 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 benefit to a broader society, can we mobilize our client base, you know, around that and make that contribution? So, I think without a doubt, we're we're really seeing a, a real shift in, in in that interest. Some listeners will be wondering what role does the ocean play in regulating the climate? Two major major elements to that. Uh, one is that it takes up about a third of of all um, uh, carbon you know, CO two emissions globally. That, uh, it also the carbon dioxide uh, in the air it gets absorbed yeah. by the ocean. It gets absorbed by the ocean and by the organisms you know that are in you know in the ocean. The water alone is not absorbing it, but the the organisms that are you know, certainly that are there. You also have it takes up about ninety percent of the heat we produce. What we're also seeing, of course, as a result of, of you know too much carbon being taken up or too much carbon being produced. Um, a knock-on effect that is the changing of the pH of the ocean. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, when when too much carbon dioxide is in the, you know, is in the in the ocean, it it creates a a, a carbonic acid, and that carbonic acid is the driver for uh, ocean acidification. And you know, ocean acidification, as you can imagine, if you extend it out further, a lot of organisms that have shells, a lot of uh, organisms that that produce a uh, a shell-like structure, like coral reefs, for example, um, are going to be impacted heavily by by that. So, um, yes, it provides all these you know these these amazing services for regulating climate, but on the other hand, you know we we're pushing it too far um, and seeing a changing of the pH through you know areas of the ocean. Is there ways that this treaty could help that, or is that really not part of what this treaty does? Well, if you think about this in the terms of a healthy ocean, you know a healthy ocean. Is going to be more resilient to change. It is going to be able to take up more carbon, um, and and so I think we need to think about those in, in the terms. You know, we are the more we stress the ocean, the less the services are, it's going to be able to continue to provide. So if we're able to you know remove those stressors in some in some way, and that means allowing it to you know to restore and and be resilient. Um, you know, the ocean is is an amazingly resilient. Uh, you know, you know, so sort of life system, Earth system, and and we see time and time again that if we give it a chance, it will be able to you know you restore it. But if we push it too far, you can imagine that that timeline of being able to restore becomes longer and longer and longer. And so you know we are at an inflection point point that that you know we need to put it back on a path of restoration. We need to think about this in a nature, people-positive way because people are going to be, you know, very important dimension to this, uh, you know, going forward. Can I play devil's advocate and kind of put a skeptical view? I remember when I was in my twenties in the nineteen nineties, it looked uh, for a casual observer who was worried about the environment. It looked like the world had solved climate change because we had the UN. Uh, Climate Change Convention. We had the Kyoto Protocol, I believe, 1997. And I remember just reading about that as a casual observer thinking, oh, thank God, the grown-ups have sorted out climate change. We've been worried about it for a couple of decades at that point. It's sorted now. That completely unraveled. And, you know, we're, we're maybe back on tracks, at least in, in terms of policy, but still way away from achieving what we need to achieve when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions and preventing climate catastrophe. Yeah. Will yeah. someone in their 20s right now listening to this thinking, oh, we've sorted the ocean. The ocean's safe now. We've done it. I mean, what are the real dangers and what needs to happen now to make sure this doesn't go the same way as, let's say, the Kyoto Protocol? So so let's be clear. Our job is not done. 
you know, there is our job is not done for you know for the ocean without a doubt. And, you know, we still keep need to be, you know, keep doing what we're doing. I mean, a lot of these activities that are occurring, whether it's plastics pollution, whether it's illegal fishing, whether it is um, unsustainable activities that are going on in the ocean space, you know, a lot of those are occurring within, you know, within the, you know, the, the, the sort of nautical mile areas of, of the, um, of the, of, you know, the ocean of, of the land. And, and, um, you know, you, there's no point in, in protecting these big areas within the high seas if we're still going to be putting, you know, more, more into the ocean and, and taking more out of it. Um, it sort of defeats the purpose really. So we need to, you know, we now have a, we now have a tool to, uh, to manage the, you know, the high seas where we haven't had that before, as I said earlier. Um, and so we need to have that sort of complementary mechanism. So our job isn't, you know, by far not done, but it's, it's about, you know, celebrating this particular moment that is going to be, I, I feel going to be transformational for, you know, for the ocean and, and the world we want to leave and the legacy we want to leave for our children and grandchildren. You talked about the, you know, the, the issue around, you know, climate and the 1990s. Uh, yes, but, but the, what, what that didn't take into account, and I think this is why this is different, is that, um, uh, you know, nations, this talks about nations, all 190 plus nations around the world, you know, changing their, their behaviors and, and carbon emissions, right? Um, and, and this is around sort of you know, emissions and regulations and reducing you know, those. What we're talking about in the high seas is, uh, is an area that, as I said earlier, very few countries have, have access to. Um, and so um, I think it's a, it's a very different you know, paradigm that we're, you know, that we're looking at at the moment compared to uh, you know, what was in the climate. So that's why I think you know, uh, you know, we have an opportunity to really you know, sort of change the trajectory of this vast area uh, of the ocean that otherwise would never have been possible. I wonder if I can ask you, just on a personal level, as someone who's worked in this, you know, if you want to talk a bit about, you know, over the years, what, what you've experienced, how did it feel? I mean, we heard there at the start of this episode, the chair of the meeting, kind of the relief in her voice after what one and a half days solid negotiation, you know, following decades of talks. I mean, what, what personally, what did it mean to you what just happened last weekend? Huge. Absolutely huge. I mean, I mean, extremely emotional, extremely emotional, you know, moment for for many people. I mean, I, I you know, even now, just when you ask me what about, I, I felt goosebumps. You know, I, you know, I just thinking about what it what it means. You know, you spend a lot of your time, you know, uh, accepting the more downs and ups. You know, um, you know, you sort of take two steps forward, and something happens, and you celebrate it, and then you realize that something else is going on that that requires our attention and, and efforts. And I, so I think I firmly believe. That this is something that that you know that the world should feel proud of for once in our lives that we're actually handing on a legacy to our children and our grandchildren that we can be really proud of. You know, yes, we're going to get it right, but you know, we're, this is a great foundation. It's taken a long time to get there, and and so I, I I think this is a you know a really incredible moment. We can't be complacent, but you know, I, you know, I think all of us, you know, many people should just take this moment just to to celebrate this news, you know, and that, that so often, you know, the media, you know, if it bleeds, it leads and the doom and gloom. And, and, you know, I, I was just in a, in an elevator with someone recently who asked me what I was doing and what I was up to. And, and they said, well, I, I, I don't believe we're on a, on a, on a pathway to make things, make the world a better place, you know, and, and that's a lot of what they're being fed, you know? And so if we can sort of amplify and continue to amplify 
these success stories that it is possible. You know, it may take some time, but but you know, I think we need to celebrate these moments. Christian Telecki, Director of Ocean Action Agenda and Friends of Ocean Action at the World Economic Forum. Thanks so much for joining us on Radio Davos. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. We have many more episodes on the ocean, on biodiversity, and on climate change in the Radio Davos back catalogue. Find them all on your podcast app of choice or at wef.ch slash podcasts, where you'll also find Meet the Leader, one-on-one interviews all about leadership, and the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast featuring some of the world's best authors. Join me and a couple of thousand podcast listeners on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with thanks to Gemma Parks. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening, and goodbye.